Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. My name is Ben Davison. I am your host. It is Sunday the 5th of March and whether you're listening to this on Sunday or on Monday or even throughout the week ahead, I hope you've had a wonderful weekend and are ready for yet another big week here in Australia or indeed around the world. Of course, it's been a huge week for the week on Wednesday with Van and I managing somehow or another to get the week on Wednesday live, not only almost filling the yurt at the Adelaide Fringe Festival, but winning an award for best workshop or talk. Quite remarkable. We had no plans on winning any awards when we started the podcast let alone winning them for a live version of the show. You can still catch Van and I at the Adelaide Fringe on March the 8th and March the 15th. There are two shows left. Do try and catch us. It's a lot of fun. The audience does get involved. And obviously, it's an award-winning podcast. So there you go. If you'd said that to me when we started, we'd be winning awards. I would have thought there was something wrong with you and suggested you speak to a doctor. Now. Speaking of people who have something wrong with them, let's talk about Angus Two-Faced Taylor. There's been a lot happening this week, and we'll go through a whole range of issues that we need to discuss. The first one, though, is, as always, on a Sunday, we like to break down what happened on Insiders. The vast majority of Insiders was dedicated to a discussion of the superannuation changes that will impact 0.5% of the population and raise $2 billion a year in revenue. To give you some sense of how much $2 billion a year in revenue is, it is the equivalent of the exemption for public and not-for-profit hospitals and public ambulance services that the Commonwealth spends, the entirety that the Commonwealth spends on that exemption. (laughs) <laughs> that's how much money we're talking about. We saw Matt Canavan try and downplay the amount of money that somehow or another it wasn't a lot of money. It is the equivalent of every dollar that the Commonwealth spends on providing tax exemptions to public and not-for-profit hospitals and public ambulance services. That's how much this measure is worth. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It only impacts 80,000 people, but we have seen the Liberal Party come out strongly in defense of those with millions and millions in their superannuation account. And the reason why I call him Angus Two-Faced Taylor is because when Angus Taylor was in government, he changed the taxation arrangements for people with millions and millions of dollars in their superannuation and went on Sunrise and defended it. And now he has gone on Insiders and done the most awkward-looking uh, two-step shuffle to try and avoid taking responsibility for that particular comment. He, of course, has tried to say that there's all sorts of hidden consequences and with bracket creep and inflation, this means that people in their 20s now will be paying. Let's be really clear. The average balance now is $150,000. The average balance for someone in their 20s is a lot less than $150,000. And for them to get to $3 million, they will need to be earning vast sums of money and making huge additional contributions. This idea that somehow or another, 
people in their 20s will magically end up with $3 million super balances in 50 or 60 years' time, and there'll be no other changes to superannuation to offset that, is both (coughs) hugely optimistic on one side of the coin and hugely pessimistic on the other. It's hugely optimistic to think that people in their 20s now will have more than $3 million in their super in 50 years' time, and hugely pessimistic to suggest that no government between now and then will see that inflation has somehow rampantly expanded, wage growth has massively beaten even the RBA's falsely optimistic projections, and simply not do anything to address that situation. Angus Taylor is trying to pretend that the 80,000 mega-wealthy Australians who are currently enjoying $2 billion of excessive tax concessions, keeping in mind that's the entirety that the Commonwealth spends on tax concessions for ambulances and hospitals, that somehow or another that should be protected and defended. So much so that Angus Taylor and Peter Dutton have said that they will repeal repeal the alterations to those tax concessions. Now, interestingly, the trade union movement who helped establish what we call our universal superannuation system in this country, which is regularly in the top three retirement systems in the world and which has seen balances grow and people's retirement no longer be a poverty sentence, the Australian Union Movement has said that these changes are a good thing and that, in fact, there are many, many things that still need to be fixed with superannuation. They've pointed out that super is about retirement, not about stashing away money for a low-tax bequest option. That's essentially what people who have millions and millions of dollars in super are doing. No one needs that amount of money in retirement. There's all sorts of just wild and outlandish claims that have been made. You can check out this week's episode of The Week on Wednesday live in the yurt where Van and I go into some of the detail there. But the union movement has pointed out, and you should, by the way, if you're not a member of the union, you should absolutely join because they are fundamentally working across so many parts of our society to improve retirement, improve workplace rights, wages, just so many things. You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, to join your union. But they point out that women still retire with less than men, that there is very few schemes where super is paid on parental leave, that billions of dollars of superannuation go unpaid by employers. Now, Angus Taylor and the insiders crew didn't discuss any of those issues. They were very focused on the minutiae of how Labor's policy would or wouldn't work, keeping in mind that draft legislation has not been prepared or distributed, and so the process for that to be debated really has not yet begun. A policy position has been announced. The detail of law is what is written by Parliament and passed by Parliament, and that's where those things are fleshed out. Angus Taylor and Peter Dutton have been out defending the 80,000 wealthiest Australians 
while nearly 24 million other Australians and their superannuation accounts are being ignored. And in fact, not just are they being ignored, insiders and David Spears failed entirely to talk about the fact that we saw this week once again record numbers of Australians working multiple jobs. We saw once again a new record in for capital taking money out of our economy. There are some neat graphs. I'll share them on our Facebook and social media pages where you can see quite clearly that the share of our national income, that is the money that we generate as a country that goes to wages, has hit a new low, while the share that goes to private capital has hit a new high. The shadow treasurer has nothing to say about these issues, nothing to say about these issues, instead is focused on defending the multi-multi-millionaires, the wealthiest Australians, the wealthiest people in this country. Nothing to say about superannuation on parental leave, which fundamentally would improve the retirements of women. Nothing to say about Australians having to work multiple jobs just to pay the rent. Nothing to say about rising rents. Nothing to say about rising mortgage rates. Nothing to say about rising costs. In fact, the opposition has nothing to say on any of those issues. The only other economic issue that David Spears was able to get Angus Taylor to talk about very briefly was the systemic state of the budget. Angus Taylor has this view that increased spending is fine so long as it is matched to or less than increased economic growth. Well, he should be very happy then because under Albanese, Jim Chalmers and the Labor government, spending has increased at a slower rate than economic growth. Of course, we here at The Week on Wednesday and in the community more broadly, we take a much more human-centered view and we are concerned that unemployment is up. We are concerned that real wages are down. We are concerned that the cost of living is increasing. We are concerned that the opposition's only interest seems to be in defending tax concessions for the very wealthy. And it's worth pointing out, once again, that these people will still get concessional rates of tax. They'll just be slightly lower than they are now. So it's not as though all of their goodies are being taken away. It's just that they are going to have to pay slightly more tax than they would otherwise have to pay. Interestingly enough, insiders didn't discuss this point, but Stuart Robert is the shadow assistant minister for financial services. That is effectively the shadow minister for superannuation. And in fact, I attended a conference where there was a video message from Stuart Robert in that role talking about the liberal policy positions and priorities for superannuation. Funnily enough, even though Labor has had the Prime Minister, the Treasurer, and the Minister uh, for Superannuation out talking about the changes, Stuart Robert was nowhere to be seen this week when it comes to superannuation, even though it is his portfolio. Now, why would that be, dear listener? Maybe it's because Stuart Robert had to front the RoboDebt Royal Commission. And his performance at that Royal Commission, although he didn't go all week, it was only 
a fairly short period of time compared to some of the testimonies that I've seen in royal commissions where witnesses are brought back again and again and again. Stuart Robert was certainly afforded much more dignity and respect than some people have been afforded in other royal commissions in the past. But Stuart Robert basically, and you can read Catherine Murphy's view about this in The Guardian. It's a fantastic piece. I'll put a link to it in our supporters' email today. Stuart Robert has basically said that even though the program was illegal, Cabinet Solidarity required him to lie to the public about the program, and even though he had personal misgivings, Cabinet Solidarity required him to go forward and promote it. Bill Shorten has called that a bizarre interpretation of Cabinet Solidarity. Uh, Insiders did point out that the Ministerial Code of Conduct does specifically say ministers should not mislead the public or the parliament. Stuart Robert has admitted now and at the Royal Commission that he did that. But quite frankly, this is not news. We know that these problems uh, were there. The CPSU, this is the Community and Public Sector Union, the union that represents public sector workers, raised concerns about robo-debt from the very beginning. In fact, in a submission to an inquiry in 2019, highlighted that the vast majority of their members, around 74%, said that the program should be discontinued, that there were concerns about the legality of the program. And in fact, throughout the Robodet Royal Commission, we have seen that where public servants raised concerns about the legality, where they raised concerns about the lawfulness of Robodet, they were routinely ignored, belittled, and in some cases, even sacked. Certainly, they were moved to other departments. Now, this is a phenomenal breach of how democratic governments are supposed to operate. Stuart Robert, Alan Tudge, Christian Porter, Scott Morrison have all given evidence at this RoboDebt Royal Commission, and their evidence collectively adds up to one thing and one thing only. The Morrison government was running an unlawful enterprise designed to demonise the most vulnerable Australians in order to recoup, in inverted commas, money that was never owed by those Australians in order to help the political prospects of the Morrison government, both in terms of being able to say they had undertaken quote-unquote budget repair and through the demonization of some of the most vulnerable people in our community. It is a shameful chapter in our nation's history. And insiders did touch on Stuart Roberts' appearance and his breach of ministerial uh, code of conduct. But, of course, it goes so much further than that. Dutton was a senior cabinet minister. He was a leadership aspirant. He is now leader of the Liberal Party. He was up to his neck in these issues. And now, this week, he has spent his time defending defending tax concessions for the wealthiest people in this country, having spent a decade in government hounding harassing, 
driving to the point of self-harm the most vulnerable Australians with the least amount of money and the least resources to defend themselves through a program which was unlawful, which was so unlawful that in the end, a public servant simply stopped the implementation of it because they believed it was unlawful and that they had a responsibility to stop it. A public servant believed they had a responsibility to stop it, even though ministers continued to pursue it. Peter Dutton has questions to answer. What will happen to Stuart Robert? He is still a member of the front bench of the opposition. He is still the spokesperson for superannuation. And in a week where we've seen what, according to Peter Dutton, is a huge set of taxation reforms that impact superannuation, Stuart Robert was nowhere to be seen. He was kept hidden so that he didn't have to answer questions about his Royal Commission performance. A performance which the Commissioner summed up as lying to the general public. That's essentially what Stuart Robert did. He has no regrets about that. It's quite phenomenal the lack of remorse that all four men from the Morrison government who have fronted the commission have demonstrated. People died. Lives were ruined, families were ruined, communities suffered trauma, and yet they have almost no remorse whatsoever. They take no responsibility. They blame a sort of collective nebulous concept. People make decisions. A public servant decided to stop the program. Public servant did that, said they would stop the program. Communities banded together and launched a class action. Bill Shorten, as shadow minister and then as minister, made decisions, took decisions to bring this into the light. People make decisions. Scott Morrison made decisions. Alan Tudge made decisions. Christian Porter made decisions. And Stuart Robert made decisions. And they must be held accountable for those. Now, Peter Dutton has decisions to make. What kind of opposition are they going to be? And what kind of government would they be? Because at the moment, it looks like they would simply be a reheated version of the Morrison government. They are, quote unquote, the noalition. They say no to everything except avoiding responsibility, except getting the perks and lurks of high office. Stuart Robert was once forced by Turnbull to step off the front bench in disgrace. It'll be interesting to see if Dutton has the same metal that Turnbull did. Of course, we all know that Turnbull was eventually rolled in part by Peter Dutton. So one doubts that he will demonstrate that same level of leadership. But again, I want to just point out the good work of the CPSU and the union movement more broadly in bringing these issues to light. There's no question that this was a deeply difficult and traumatic period for those public sector workers who were forced to implement these policies. 
And what the Royal Commission has highlighted is that again and again and again, you had good, honest, hardworking public servants raising issues, highlighting problems, in the end, often sacrificing their careers to try and stop this damaging, damaging policy. And I don't think insiders talked enough about that. I think we need to recognize that. Now, there are lots of stories of some very senior public sector executives doing the wrong thing, and many of them still have to be held to account. But a big shout out to the CPSU and its members who were raising these issues, who made submissions to the 2019 inquiry, and who helped drive us to the point we are now, where these problems and the truth are being properly exposed. Of course, there's lots of other things going on around the world. The Russians have launched a counteroffensive in Bakhmut. It is an absolute disaster what's going on over there. Russia continues its war of aggression. Ukraine continues to try and hold the line, and our solidarity goes to the Ukrainian people in their fight for democracy. Insiders again missed a pretty important uh, story, in my view. New South Wales Labor is launching their campaign for the state election in Hurstville. We are not far away now. It is this month, the New South Wales election, and based on current polls, Labor is slightly ahead. No mention of it whatsoever on Insiders. New South Wales is the largest state by population and by gross domestic product, and it has had a decade, more than a decade of mismanagement under the Liberals. Dominic Perrottet is Premier without having ever been elected as Premier. Chris Minns is vying to become Labor's elected Premier of New South Wales. And of course, the policy positions are pretty stark. Chris Minns has committed to fully funding public education. He has committed to rebuilding manufacturing and credit to the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, the ETU, and the Australian Workers Union, all of which, and the United Workers Union, all of which have been involved in trying to improve the state of manufacturing in New South Wales. Chris Minns has made commitments in that space. Of course, fundamentally, we know the Liberal Party in New South Wales is a shambles uh, and frankly, has been full of crooks for most of the time it's been in power, some of whom have gone to jail, some of whom are facing criminal charges. In fact, there's one candidate who's facing allegations and charges relating to inappropriate sexual conduct, uh, yet is running now as an independent uh, who, at last check, didn't even have a Liberal opponent such as the Liberals' desire to count on him helping them form government. I mean, this is quite, frankly, terrifying in an Americanization of politics, at a state level at least. Not surprising that it's coming out of New South Wales, the home of Scott Morrison. This sort of government needs to be turfed out. If it's not turfed out, it sends a terrible signal about what our democracy really is all about. And of course, we wish Chris Minns and the Labor team all the very best. You can check out Van and I's interview with Chris Minns, the Labor leader, uh, from just before Christmas. It is available 
uh, on all good podcasting sites and, of course, on our social media channels as well. Really insightful discussion about who Chris Minns is, what he believes, and what he thinks is important uh, should he become Premier of New South Wales. Let me tell you, there's a lot of good values alignment there. Speaking of launches, the campaign for Aston, Mary Doyle, Labor for Aston, launched yesterday with Anthony Albanese uh, and Mary Doyle in Baronia. Uh, Unfortunately, I was unable to get to Baronia. But of course, as I mentioned in this week's episode of The Week on Wednesday, live in the yurt at Adelaide Fringe, Mary Doyle is a former colleague of mine, someone who I worked with for nearly a decade, or at least the best part of a decade, and who I have donated to during the general election, and I have donated to again for the by-election. If you can get out there, and a shout-out to Poggers Magoo, who contacted me during the week to say that he was volunteering to help Mary Doyle in the by-election. Of course, whatever support you can provide, whether that's being out there, knocking on doors, handing out flyers, making calls, making donations to help uh, the advertising campaign, We need to buck the trend of over 100 years of by-election results. Normally, governments lose by-elections. That is the Australian way. Local communities tend to punish sitting governments when it comes to a by-election. In the case of Aston, we should remember that Alan Tudge was the MP. Alan Tudge only stood in order to ensure there would be a by-election. That's why he stood, because he knew that if Labor won, they would have, that is the Labor Party, would have a worse chance of winning the seat than if he stood down at the election and Aston was able to be won in a general election. Mary Doyle got a 10% swing towards her at the general election, a huge swing in what has been traditionally a very conservative area. I spoke about this with Stephen Donnelly from Socially Democratic, former State Assistant Secretary of the ALP a couple of Fridays ago, and he pointed out that he thinks this is very winnable. This is a very winnable by-election. It will be difficult. It will be hard. It will need to buck 100 years of history. But let me tell you this. I know Mary Doyle, and she will work her socks off, not just to get elected, but to represent the people of Aston. This is a genuinely hardworking working class woman who has raised her kids, has come up the hard way, and quite frankly, never really had ambitions to be in parliament. But when nobody really wanted to put their hand up to run against a minister of the Morrison government in a safe liberal seat, Mary said, you know, that's the area I'm from. They deserve better than Alan Tudge. I'm prepared to give it a go. Not only did she give it a go, she came within two points of winning it. Now, the by-election is a different story. We all know that. I've described why it's a different story. But all of our solidarity and strength goes to Mary Doyle and her efforts to try and win the seat of Aston for Labor and to give the Albanese government just a little bit more breathing room as it embarks upon its ambitious agenda for reform. I want to talk very briefly about those ambitious agendas for reform because, of course, the media and insiders in particular just 
screams out for reform all the time. Why can't we have reform? We need to reform the tax system. Things are broken. We need reform. But every time Labor tries to implement even the smallest reforms, media becomes obsessed with gotcha moments. They did it to Jim Chalmers this week. Koshy asked Jim Chalmers to say that there would never, ever, ever be any changes to the tax arrangements on the family home. Jim Chalmers said, that's not something we're looking at, but I can't make commitments for future governments. And you know what that is? That is an honest response. That is an honest response. Now, Albo was asked the question by Patricia Carvelis on the radio not long after that, are you planning on taxing the family home? And he said, no, we're not. I've never had a conversation about that with anyone. That's not something we're planning to do. Those are essentially the same answers. Now, Jim Chalmers was painted as somehow or another opening the door to taxing the family home. That's not what he did. What he did was he said that in 20 years' time, when the Liberals come back into power, they might do that. That's what, that's what he was saying. Governments have a limited shelf life. And for any treasurer to say they'll never, ever, ever, ever be a thing is a nonsense. And we saw that play out. John Howard was asked that about the GST. And he said there would never, ever be a GST under John Howard. And then he brought in the GST. I mean, media cries out for governments to implement reform and then embarks upon nothing but gotchas and complaints. You know, there's lots of things that came out this week about foregone revenues. These are the tax arrangements that governments have in place, the government has in place. You know, the second largest foregone revenue source in the Australian Commonwealth is for rental deductions. $24.4 billion, $24.4 billion foregone on deductions for rental properties. Now, maybe that's a good use of money. I don't know. But let me tell you this. There's not going to be reforms to rental deductions when the media, the Murdoch media in particular, the Kerry Stokes media in particular, embark upon gotcha moments. They do nothing about Nothing about robo-debt for years and years, with some notable exceptions. The Guardian here, uh, the Saturday paper, they wrote about robo-debt for some time. But the rest of the mainstream media, even the ABC, was pretty quiet on robo-debt. But by God, they've come, they've come to the defense of the wealthiest. So while insiders might lament a lack of big reform, they make it harder. They make it harder every single time. Small reforms get attacked for being too much and attacked for being too little. How would a government even begin, even begin to reform rental reductions? How would they even begin to reform accelerated depreciation? Of course, they can't because. The minute they try, they will be attacked mercilessly in the media because there are vested interests. That's a lot of money, $24 billion. A lot of money. And look, I'm not saying that's something the government will do or should do, but I'm using it as an example. How can we possibly have reform 
when the media's obsession with attacking governments trying to make reform makes it almost impossible. It's a very simple, very simple equation. 80,000 of the richest Australians will receive less of a tax concession, which will save the budget $2 billion, which is the equivalent, which is the equivalent of the tax we forego for public hospitals and ambulance services. That is a huge amount of money from a relatively small group of already very wealthy people. Finally, I want to say World Pride is wrapping up in Sydney. There is a march across the Sydney Harbour Bridge or a walk across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, depends on how you like to describe it. Michelle O'Neill, the president of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, said at an event recently uh, as part of World Pride, rainbows are great, but we fight for rights. You know, and I think that really sums up the Australian Union attitude absolutely in their shoulder to shoulder, in solidarity with communities, with communities to support not just symbolic efforts, but genuine tangible material efforts that improve the rights and outcomes for working people, whether they be LGBTIQA+, whether they be older Australians, younger Australians, new Australians, whatever, or even if they're just here temporarily, but they are working, whether they're Australians who are out of work and want to get back into work or Australians who can no longer work because of the way they were treated by their employer. The Australian Union movement is fighting for rights and it's been phenomenal to see the union pride flags and the amount of trade unionists involved in world pride over the past little while. Now, hopefully you will come along and see Van and I in the yurt on either March 8th or 15th and we can do the week on Wednesday live. You can be part of that audience. Of course, our supporters through our Buy Me A Coffee page, that's buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday, have really made all of this possible. It's been a phenomenal journey so far. We have so far still to go. Hopefully, uh, you will consider becoming a supporter. If you can't make a financial contribution, that's okay. The podcast will always be free to listen and download. Just share it with friends. Talk about it with your colleagues. Don't forget to join your union. And until Van and I are together again in the yurt, remember, be kind to yourself, be kind to each other, and vote yes for the voice and constitutional recognition.